0: Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. Then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for.
1: Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a non-profit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. The topic of this third part in this six-part mission series is The Enemy. Father John reveals the lies the demonic one can continually tell us and the deceptions that he brings before our eyes and ears, all in an unending effort to separate us from our loving Father. Here is Father John Ricardo.
0: Well, Tonight we tackle a little bit of the bad news in that I want to talk tonight about the devil. Certainly one of the more provocative figures in The Passion of the Christ is the way that Gibson portrays the demonic I think it's a very effective way of portraying the devil. Um, it certainly brings you into a greater awareness that what Jesus is involved in and what we're all involved in is a conflict of a far greater level than we probably ever thought. So whether it's the scene with Jesus and Satan in the garden at the beginning of the movie, or the way they portray the uh, encounters with Judas and the devils or Satan's presence almost pleading with Jesus during the scourging to just quit and just give up, or whether it's the final scene at the end when Satan shrieks at the moment of the crucifixion. Certainly one of the main figures in this movie, and I think one of the things that we can hopefully try to capitalize on, is the portrayal of Satan. Now in doing this, this is a little dangerous. You don't play with the devil. A wise man who was an evangelical, he used to have a a ministry of working with the possessed, used to talk about how uh, to be a Christian is something like to be a mailman. So, your job as a mailman is to deliver the mail. That's what you do. But, in the job of delivering the mail, every once in a while, dogs come by and try to attack you. So you carry a stick to ward off the dogs. And that's part of the task. But the mailman's really in trouble the moment he drops the mail and goes out looking for dogs. And he goes on to make the same connection with Christians, or with anybody. That while we need to be aware of the evil one, have to be aware of your opponent, just like a good soldier going out to battle, or a good athletic team of whatever kind going out to face its foe, you have to know the enemy. But you can't be so consumed with the enemy that you lose sight of what it is that we're about. So in trying to talk about him tonight, we're going to try and do that without being overly curious, but at the same time just trying to learn something about who it is, who is our opponent. So the first question would seem to be, who's the devil? From whence did he come? And our information on the fall of the angels and the devil is pretty sketchy. In all reality, we have lots of references from all the way the beginning of the Bible in Genesis to the very end, the book of Revelation. And everywhere in between, there are allusions to, more than just allusions, there are references to demons, to Satan, to the devil, to devils, to the fall of the angels. But it's in combination with Scripture as well as theological reflection, the works of the fathers of the church, and some speculative theology uh, whether it's Aquinas or Scotus or a whole set of other theologians down through the ages, that we kind of add all that together to get some understanding of who it is who is facing us. So what can we say? Well, the first thing to say, and this might be basic, but for some of us it it may not be, is that the devil is real. He's very real. And he hates you. That's the bad news. It's the flip side of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The devil hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. The second thing is the devil is a created being. The devil is a creature. In the same way that you and I are creatures, but you and I are a mix of body and spirit, the devil is pure spirit. Same thing that you could say about an angel, you can say about the devil, for the devil is a fallen angel. And the devil was created good. God only makes good. In fact, much of the confusion around the devil comes from a way of thinking that is actually what we would call Manichaeanism, which sees that creation is split up into a good God and a bad God. The good God is pure spirit and the bad God is involved in the creation of matter and that they war against each other. But that's not truth, okay? There's one God, And it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The devil is not a rival God. In fact, the devil's rival is not God, it's Michael. It's important to grasp. That's why we pray to Saint Michael, for his protection. As we see in Revelation 12, and we'll look at that, the war between the angels happens between Lucifer, or Satan, and Michael. So the devil's equal, so to speak, is Michael, Not God. Two church councils, particularly addressing this whole matter of Manichaeanism, which is still very much alive today, even though we may not know that word. You see people who seek to flee from the material and just want to escape into the pure spirit, the purely spiritual. But the most evil thing in all reality is pure spirit. That's Satan. So the goal isn't to become more spiritual. The goal is to become more holy, That's the goal in life, not to be spiritual, to be holy. Two councils. One is called the Council of Braga. It's a town in Portugal. This is back in the 6th century, which came up with three canons, three pronouncements that were made by the church. They read like follows. If anyone says that the devil was not first a good angel created by God or that his nature was not the work of God, But that he emerged from darkness and had no creator but is himself the principle and substance of evil, anathema sit, or we would translate into English, let him be condemned. Second canon, if anyone says that the devil made some of the creatures in the world, and that he is by his own power the author of thunder and lightning and storms and droughts, anathema sit, here again, involved in matter and creation and material No, that's not the devil. And lastly, if anyone says that the formation of the human body, again, matter, is the work of the devil and that the conception of children in their mother's wombs is brought about through the activity of the devil, and for this reason does not believe in the resurrection of the body, anathema sit. One of the interesting things about the Manichaeans was that they disparaged marriage. They had no use for marriage. Marriage was something of the flesh. It led to more children of the flesh. Therefore, it was an evil Rather interesting, given the time we live in now. Lastly, another church council, the Fourth Lateran Council, this is back in 1215, says, this picks up the middle of a quote, talking about God who by his own omnipotent power at once from the beginning of time created each creature from nothing, spiritual and corporal, namely angelic and mundane, and finally the human constituted, as it were, alike of the spirit and the body. For the devil and other demons were created by God, good in nature. But they themselves, through themselves, have become wicked. And man sinned at the suggestion of the devil. So the devil then is a created being, created good. It's pure spirit. And it's it. It's not he. It's not she. Gibson's portrayal of the devil, I think, is... Quite clever. I don't know if you all notice this, but it's androgynous. It's not a woman. It's not a temptress. It's an androgynous being. It has the form of a woman, but it has a man's voice. In a culture that is so confused about the significance of gender, it seemed like Gibson hit on something there. But the devil is an it. Just like my guardian angel is an it. It's not a he. There is no sex to the angels. And then by a free act, the devil became fallen. It chose to rebel against God in the same way that you and I can choose to rebel against God. That's the same basic principle. So the devil is not an evil God in competition, and he is not God's opponent. Michael is, and he's a creature. Now, how did the devil fall? Well, that's a great question, and we don't really know. We have lots of hints from Scripture, we have lots of allusions, lots of different passages which refer to um, kings that the Israelites battled against, which then became to be understood as not simply applying to that king, but actually giving us illumination into the fall of the evil one, or who we would call the evil one. So there are some hints. One is from Isaiah, chapter 14. Remember, Scripture has both a literal sense and then a spiritual sense. The literal sense is, what are we talking about? The spiritual sense is, okay, how does this go beyond simply what the words mean here? So the literal sense of this text applies to the king of Babylon, an enemy of the Israelites. The spiritual sense gives us insight into the devil. Follow me? This is what Isaiah writes. How have you fallen from the heavens, O morning star? Lucifer, which means light bearer. Son of the dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, you who mowed down the nations? You said in your heart, I will scale the heavens. Above the stars of God I will set up my throne. I will take my seat on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet down to the netherworld you go, to the recesses of the pit. Something similar is said in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 28, most of 28, in particular verses 12 to 15. So, the gist here is that somehow, not just the king of Babylon, but as we understand this to apply to the devil, tried to overreach something, to reach beyond what a creature can attain, and to grasp something for itself. We all know this. We're all subject to pride. Okay? So the sin, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, that the devil committed when he was a good angel, which then led to his fall, was desiring to be as God. Not equal to God, but like God, okay? So it's pride. Although Scotus, another theologian, would say that the sin of Lucifer is really more like something like spiritual lust, A lot of this is imagery, if nothing else, for the fact that the devil, remember, doesn't have a body. He's a pure intellect, which we'll get into a little bit later because that should give you some sense of how frightening the opponent is here. It's a pure spirit. It's non-bodily. The occasion of the fall is unknown. Some of the fathers speculated that the fall happened because the angels were somehow shown a glimpse of the Incarnation where God would wed to himself a creature much less than the angels, that's us, and forever unite it to the Godhead. So what happens in the incarnation of Jesus is human nature and divine nature wed in the one person of the eternal Son of God. And now human nature is forever wed to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the speculation was that the angels, upon seeing this, recoiled in pride. And there's some merit to that, if nothing else, from the fact that in Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7, and we'll look at that in a moment, where it talks about the war in heaven, the war in heaven between the angels, between Michael and his angels, and between Satan and his, is occasioned by the presence of the woman who is with child. Well, that's Mary, and the church, and the people of Israel, it's all these things. And the child is the Lord. So there could be some truth to that. But again, all of this, or much of this, is speculation. Ultimately, we don't know how he fell. We just know that he fell. And we know a little bit more than that as we get into some of this. I want to just talk quickly about the names of the devil and its character. So we know the devil by a variety of names. One is Satan, huh? Do you know what Satan means? The accuser. Remember, names don't just tell you names, names tell you something about who the thing is that has the name. So we learn something about the character of the evil one by its name. He is the accuser. We see that, for instance, in the story of Job, huh? Satan comes before God. And God says, you know, where have you been? Satan says, well, I've been patrolling the earth, looking for someone to accuse before you. And then God, this is, I don't want to get lost in this, but unfortunately, the the scary thing in the book of Job is God actually picks the fight, huh? God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Job's got to be going, oh, hello? Just minding my own business over here. Consider my servant Job. Yeah. But God picks the fight with Job because Job's going to be a, an image of Jesus, huh? The righteous man who doesn't give in, even in the midst of great loss. So Satan then accuses Job before God. Says, yeah, he's a good man, but look, you've blessed everything he's ever done. Curse him, see what happens. Take away his family. What disaster happened to him? Then he'll curse your name, I guarantee you. And so it happens. But Job remains righteous. That's the devil as the accuser. Another case would be, again, this passage in Revelations 12, which we'll refer to a lot. If you got a Bible, it'd be worth having open to Revelations 12, beginning in verse 7. But in verse 10, the author of Revelation, John, writes, For the accuser of our brethren, that would be Satan, is cast out, who night and day accuse them before God. That's what Satan does. Night and day, he accuses us. It's a similar illustration of this in the Gospel of Luke, if you remember in Luke's gospel, right before, actually, Peter promises the Lord that he'll never deny him. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, all of you, the apostles, like wheat. And Jesus goes on to say, but I have prayed for you that when you return, you will strengthen your brethren. Well, the whole imagery of sifting you is to find something at fault within you so that he can accuse you before me. That's what the devil does. He just points his finger. We all know this. This is our experience of the evil one, huh? Some image from the past, some sin that we've done, some confessed sin in our life. He just points what the demons do to us. Most of us don't merit Satan himself. Satan, unlike God, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. Satan's not. He can only be one place. God's omniscient. He knows everything. Satan's not. So most of us are being plagued with lesser demons, which don't help all that much, but we don't merit the evil one himself to show up on our doorstep. So the first name then is the accuser. The second name is the devil. The devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which is the divider. That's what he does. The devil brings disunity. That's how you recognize his work. There's division. God is the source of unity. God is three persons in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You and I are called into unity. The devil hates unity. He works against it. His message is always, or his game is always to divide. See this in a particular way in marriages. From the day of your wedding until the day of your death, one of his games against you who are married is to divide you. That's what he's doing. Be on guard against that. Realize that someone is at work. And call upon Michael and your patron saints to protect you. Another name that he goes by is the deceiver. This is what we see in Genesis 3, huh? The first time that the the devil, or in that case, understood as the serpent, appears. And that's what he does with the first man and the first woman, how he tries to deceive them. Very subtly. There's great uh, significance to the fact that the devil is portrayed as a serpent. A snake looks pretty harmless. We have great disgust at him, but we've kind of learned that. If you look at a snake in a zoo, it's asleep. It's coiled around a tree. seems to move very slow. It doesn't look like it's really going to do all that much. And then it jumps at you. So it is with sin and with Satan. It takes the guise of being very safe very harmless, nothing to worry about. You can flirt with me. It's okay. And then, you're bit. Also, we see the deceiver again in Revelations 12. Huh? This is verse 9, where it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. I'll talk a little bit about his strategies in a minute. I just want to go through his names. So he's the accuser, the divider, the deceiver. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, calls him a murderer from the beginning. It's what he does. He delights in death. Jesus talking to those who oppose him say to him, These are some pretty strong words, huh? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's pretty good authority. Jesus was there at the beginning. I'm word for that. The book of Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 24 says, But by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who are in his possession experience it. By the envy of the devil, death entered. Entered the world, and those who are in his possession experience it. Contrary to the imagery of the world that to disobey the commandments is to live free, (laughs) no. To live in sin is to be possessed by death. All of us are either possessed by righteousness or possessed by sin. None of us are independent in that regard. In the same text John 8:44 Jesus calls the devil the liar. He goes on to say after the passage we just quoted he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks or when he lies he speaks according to his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Peter's first letter, chapter 5, verse 8, says, this is a warning to all of us as Christians, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now that might seem intimidating, it should, but note that a roaring lion hasn't yet caught its prey. Right? The moment a lion has its prey... It hides it. It's quiet because it's eating it. It doesn't want anyone to share in it. The roaring lion is still in search of prey, trying to intimidate it, to frighten it, to grab it. So the devil is seen as this roaring lion trying to walk around us to frighten us. But he doesn't have us. The devil is also known as the adversary. Again, this is akin to the accuser, huh? And that's one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit. Fathers of the church used to say, just as we have an adversary, so we have an advocate. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Remember, Jesus says, I will send you the advocate. One of the names for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, huh? One of the understandings of the paraclete is he who answers the cry. It's one of the understandings that we have of the Holy Spirit. The one who answers the cry. That's on the God's side who defends us. Now we have an adversary who's not an equal to the one who defends us, but all he does is accuse and point his finger again. You can think of Luke, again, the passage that we quoted when Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. You can think of Job. He's the adversary. He is the tempter. Genesis 3, huh? tempting Adam and Eve into the first sin. Think of Matthew 4, or the passage that we just heard a couple of weeks ago in Lent with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and all the parallel passages in the synoptics. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus out into the desert where he encounters the devil to be tempted. And then at the end of the temptations in the Gospel of Luke, it says the devil left him for another time. That's what Gibson's picking up on in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's reading that as the other time. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not a scriptural account, obviously, but it's pretty clever. Certainly not to say that Jesus wasn't seeing something or experiencing temptation at that point, huh? Acts chapter 13, verses 10, Paul in one of his speeches talking about someone who's in the possession of the devil, says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. So the devil is the enemy of everything righteous, full of villainy, full of deceit, a double tongue, huh? The devil is the ruler of this world. That's what Jesus says the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31, right before Jesus is handed over, huh? Right before his farewell discourses in John 12, 13, 14, 15, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. That's going to happen on the cross. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, helps us understand this too. Paul says to us, And you he made alive, When you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Contrary to those supposed scripture scholars who would say, you know, the the authors are talking in imagery which the people would relate to, this is divine revelation reminding us very forcefully that we are in a conflict. Don't be deceived. We're in a battle. You don't get to choose whether you're going to be in the battle. You're in it. I'm in it. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to say, in this battle there are no rusty swords. You have to fight. You either fight against evil or you fight against God. For to choose not to decide is already to decide not to follow God. Right? So those are some of the names of the evil one and some of his character. So what's its goal? Well, it's pretty simple. Its goal is your destruction. That's what the devil has for you and for me. Destruction. Unending destruction. Remember, everybody here is going to live forever. The only question is where? And to enter into heaven is to enter into unending joy, huh? the very life of God, His happiness, His goodness, His joy, His blessedness, the fullness of His love, everything. And that will never end. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the flip side is also true. Hell never ends. It's unending death. Ponder that. Unending death. There is an intelligent, concentrated effort directed at you and me to thwart us from reaching the end for which we were created. You can come up with lots of, lots of imagery for hell. I remember doing the uh, spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius when you ponder hell throughout one whole day, which is a real joyful exercise. <laughs> Obviously, you, you first think of fire and pain and all this kind of physical torture and whatnot. But that didn't really stay with me very long. For me, anyway, as I continued to pray with this, there were two images that were... Last thing for me, one was the fact that, oh, I would love to have a friend now. All the people in my life that I so took for granted, who I never stopped to talk to, now I have no one to talk to because there is in hell no communication. There's no friendship. There's no camaraderie. There's no unity. There's no happiness. There's just loneliness, unending loneliness. That was the first horrifying thought. The second one is that the image of just for all eternity being mocked, being laughed at for all eternity. You, you who were made in the image and likeness of God who he created to share his happiness in heaven were so stupid to have been deceived by me who you thought cared for you to have rebelled against him. You idiot. And then to just live for all eternity in humiliating mockery. That's one of, for me, the most helpful images to think of hell as. Now, it's important to understand that in going about this goal, the devil knows he's lost. Let's look at this passage in, in Revelation. Revelations 12, beginning in verse 7. John writes, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Rejoice then, O heaven, and you that dwell therein. For he who was the adversary is gone from the ranks of heaven. But woe to you, O earth, John writes. And see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. That's effectively shown in the conclusion of Gibson's Passion of the Christ, when you see Satan in this kind of pit-like place, surrounded by all sorts of bones, screaming as he sees his work undone. That's what's being communicated there. The devil knows he's lost. He's not fooled. (laughs) He doesn't think that there's still a chance. He knows he's been crushed and humiliated and defeated and robbed and stripped of his power. He's experienced that. His task is to so deceive you and me that we don't get that. So for some of us who might be Faithful, the the temptation would be discouragement. Don't you see what's changed since Calvary? So God died and he rose from the dead. Tell me what's changed. What's better? Let me hold up in front of you the 20th century with hundreds of millions of people slaughtered in concentration camps and gulags. Let me show you the slaughter of children in this country, the degradation of women, And on and on and on. That's his game with us. What's changed? Nothing's better. God hasn't won. Sound familiar? Or am I the only one who hears that voice? Particularly for young people, I think, it's important to know there is no reigning in hell. Not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N. Hell's not a party. It's no real celebration of the obnoxious rebellion ones who thumb their noses at authority. There is no celebration in hell. The devil is not anyone's chum. He's not going to high-five anyone for having stuck it to God. His game is to mock. Remember, Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep and then he starts talking about the thief the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy notice in those three things that to kill isn't the worst thing that happens he's come to steal and to kill and to destroy for all eternity that's his game don't be deceived there is no rebellious, revolt, Friday night party in hell. So what's the devil's strategy? Well, there's a couple ways to look at this. C.S. Lewis talks in his introduction to the Screw Tape Letters, which perhaps some of you have read, great book, um, a rather hellish insight into the thinking of demons, which is what he's trying to do. It's, the, it's a book about a, a senior devil writing to a junior devil about how to... Uh, thwart someone from reaching the goal for which they were made. So he keeps giving advice. Very worth reading. Rather humiliating to read and to see, oh my gosh, I have fallen for that time and time again. Lewis writes in the very introduction that the devil has kind of two strategies that are equally effective for him. One is to deceive people to think that he doesn't exist. He's fine with that. devil's not real, you don't have to worry about him. The other strategy is kind of the converse. It's to get people to be so preoccupied with him that they become obsessed with him or to think that he's more powerful than he really is. huh? God can turn Satan into a toad if he wants to. He's a creature. He cowers in fear at the name of Jesus. So either of these strategies the devil wins by. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, used to use the image that each of us is something like a, a medieval fortress, a tower. And the devil is like an attacking army. And he just walks around the tower, so the table's the tower, he just keeps walking around the tower looking for a weak spot. And the moment he finds a crack in the tower, he launches an assault at it. And he just keeps attacking until he can finally break through the wall. Well, I find that to be plenty true in my own life. We all have particular weak spots where we have experienced kind of a relentless assault from the evil one throughout. Huh? Kind of our task is patch up the wall and tell him, you know what, you've got to find another place. You're not coming through there again. But that's another, I think, helpful image to see his strategy. The Holy Father, in his encyclical letter on the Holy Spirit, talks about one of the strategies of the devil is to accuse God. This is something which is very prevalent in modern culture today, which sees God as the enemy of happiness, particularly youth, but not just youth. The Holy Father writes Here we find ourselves at the very center of what might be called the anti-word, that is to say, The anti-truth, for the truth about man becomes falsified. He's talking about Genesis 3, the temptations of the devil to Adam and Eve. This anti-truth is possible because at the same time, there is a complete falsification about the truth of who God is. God the Creator is placed in a state of suspicion by the devil, indeed of accusation in the mind of the creature. He seeks to falsify good itself, the absolute good, which precisely in the work of creation has manifested itself as the good which gives in an inexpressible way. The Holy Father's point is, the devil's game is to say to God, he doesn't really love you. If he really loved you, he'd have you eat of this tree. Look at it. Look how good it is. It's obvious. He's holding out on you. If you eat of this, Ah, then you will be like God. And for each of us, something similar is the devil's lie. Don't you get it? Isn't it painfully obvious he doesn't care about you? If he cared about you, don't you think he would have healed you? You've been asking him, praying for that sickness to be gone for years. It's not gone. You still have it. You've been praying about that relationship to get healed for years. It's not healed. Don't you see? He doesn't care. He isn't good. Or he's not very powerful. One or the other. That's his lie. That's why the crucifix is so important. To always have in front of me the definitive response to the devil's accusation. I know he's good, because I can see it. I don't know why he answer- hasn't answered my prayer. I don't know why I'm not healed. I don't know why this hasn't come to pass, but I know he's good. I can see him hanging on a cross for me. Go back to hell. I want to say something quickly about defenses. I just want to give you one other example of one of the ways he works, because I think it's important. We talked about this a little last week. and. One of our Wednesday night or Wednesday morning sessions, but the devil's game for many of us anyway is to just tempt like crazy um, from the outside, and he tempts like crazy by just trying to uh, deceive us by thinking, "You know what? you know God is merciful. You know that. He's a loving God. He'll always take you back. You know he will. You know he's good, you know he's kind, you know he's compassionate. Go for it. Do it. Go ahead. And then the moment we do it, he becomes the accuser and just begins to point his finger at us and say, you? You who know God? Who knew exactly what you did? You think he's going to forgive you? Oh no. He won't forgive you. So he goes from being kind and gentle and enticing, much like you see the whole portrayal of the devil with Jesus in the beginning of this movie, huh? Who's just speaking in this very soft voice, very subtly, very quietly, to something ferocious. All right, something quick on defenses. Two things. The first thing has three points. Scripturally speaking, there are three defenses. Or three passages I'll refer you to. First is Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. St. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your loins with the truth. These are the specific tactics now that Paul is recommending. Remain in truth. Truth is found by clinging to what the church hands on to us. Remain in the truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Get in grace. Strive to live in grace. Having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Live, in other words, so as to bring the gospel everywhere you go. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench the flaming darts of the evil one. Sometimes I know in my life, all I do is I stand and, and I declare in front of hell, I believe in God. I believe in God. Period. I have faith. and Somehow that comes against the evil that tries to attack us, which we try to shake us and make us lose hope or become discouraged or whatever. I believe in God. So take up the shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Become familiar with how God has revealed Himself in Scripture. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's Paul's advice to us from Ephesians. James is a little bit more simple and straightforward. It comes from chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God. That's James' advice to you. Submit to God. Why? Because the devil's sin is pride. He will not serve. So submit to God. Resist the devil, James goes on to say, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. This is the beginning of that passage we read earlier. Peter says, warns us, be sober. Be watchful. Because, he goes on to say, your enemy, the devil, is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering which you're going through is happening amongst the whole community. One of the devil's great games is to try to isolate us. You are the only person in the whole world who struggles with this. You so pathetic. That's what he does. He just puts me in a corner. Your marriage is the only marriage that has this difficulty. You think someone's going to understand? No one will understand. It's you. You're the problem. Peter says, no. Understand that whatever we go through, the whole community is somehow going through. There are others always sharing in what I'm going through. It's comforting to know. Lastly, probably the greatest defense, humility, humility, humility. The model of which is Mary. My last waking thought almost every night before I go to bed is, Mary, put your mantle above me and protect me. Because somehow it's a really thick mantle. This little cloth is pretty powerful. The devil hates Mary. He can't trick her. Because she's obedient. She submits to God. She trusts him. She puts her faith in him. Therefore, she's our model. So let her intercession in a particular way be a means to protect and defend us. The rosary, of course, is highly recommended as a great defense against the evil one. And, of course, confession, which is also an act of humility, huh? Again, something which the devil hates. So we could go on and on and on, but uh, it's a rather unsavory topic,
1: and I'll leave it at that. After his talk, Father Ricardo took some questions from the congregation.
0: Maybe we can just take two questions, but I want to just allow two people to ask questions, just because I know uh, this becomes problematic for many of us.
1: Yes. (laughs) You said that.
0: There's like three questions here. You only get one. <laughs> what question do you want? <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Ask me who the baby is. Um, the Antichrist is another talk. That's the easy way out of it. The Antichrist is that spirit which is co- hostile to God, okay, which is contrary to God. John, in his letters, okay, writes often about the Antichrist, or the spirit of the Antichrist, which John says is even now at work within the world. In many ways, um, it's easier to explain it by its tactics, which would be an abhorrence and a resistance to the cross, a refusal to acknowledge that God has come in the flesh. John identifies the Antichrist as the one who refuses to uh, say that jesus has come in the flesh that he is the son of god in the flesh the, the simplistic answer and it is very simplistic but it's only because i don't think i have the time to go into it is that it is that spirit which is resistant to god it's more than just a spirit resistant to god it's it's a very concentrated force against god whose intention it is to deceive is that somewhat helpful anyway no just provokes more questions sorry <laughs> yes Okay, the question is, does God have a purpose for the devil? Well, his purpose was for him to share in his own life. That was the purpose. Not in the same way that you and I can, because you and I are, are now exalted because of the incarnation above the angels. That's rather hard to imagine, to be honest with you. I mean, there, there's twice as many persons in this room right now, in this chapel right now. Huh? Twice as many persons than you can see. There's us. And then there's all of our guardian angels, who are all here right now. You just can't see them. And then a host of whatever else is here, which some of you have dragged in. (laughs) My entourage, I'm sure, is bigger. Um, The purpose is that um, God is being absolute goodness. Good is generous it's diffusive we would say philosophically it just spreads itself so the purpose of him creating anything was just to share his own life he doesn't need us he didn't need the angels he just did it as a manifestation of his goodness their rebellion wasn't part of the plan any more than my rebellion or your rebellion which could happen wouldn't have been part of his plan his plan was for you and i to share in his own life forever in heaven The plan is akin to, or his plan for the devil was akin to that, just in a lesser way, because he couldn't share the life that you and I can, because God didn't come, become an angel to redeem angels. He did become a man to redeem men. Okay? Why he doesn't just destroy him, you can ask him when you see him. You know, it's important to remember, and I thought, I thought the movie was helpful for this, you know, even though the movie is very, I mean, it's doing a lot of creative, dramatic things, okay, which are not in Scripture, but are very helpful. I think it helps you understand, and it helps me understand how real the conflict is that we're in. That that somehow you and I, first of all, are far more important than we could have ever imagined. That the creator of the universe would choose to endure what you've seen he endured for you and for me is really mind-boggling. How can I or you be that significant in the scope of things? But then on the downside of that to also realize that because we are so significant to God, the evil one also finds us significant. I mean, he doesn't go attacking giraffes. He comes after us to try to keep us from the end. Again, I, I just throw it out for, for you as a, an image which I find to be the most helpful one. Personally, it's a pretty unpleasant experience to be mocked. I think we can all identify with that, huh? Imagine if I asked one of you to stand up right now, we just put you in the center of the chapel, and we just all took shots at you and laughed at you. Just exposed all your most humiliating moments of your life and just had a field day with you. That's a taste of hell. Now personally, I'd rather give that to the devil than experience it myself. So when temptation comes, understand that what's coming is someone who's trying, he's just trying to mock you. And then with that in mind, kind of buckle up and fight stronger against him. All right? Again, we we could do lots. Do not as I warned at the beginning, become preoccupied with this. Stay in grace, or get in grace. Try to live humbly. Stay close to Our Lady. Invoke the intercession of St. Michael. Keep your eyes on God. Deliver the mail. Just carry the stick. (laughs) Don't go looking for dogs. Do not become curious in the occult. Do not become curious about the occult. It's very, very dangerous. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay? Next week, we're going to talk about suffering and our own sharing in the Lord's suffering. Paul says in... Chapter 1 of Colossians, one of the most troubling verses, I think, in all of Scripture, that I fill up in my own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Well, if you've seen the movie, what in the world could be lacking in the sufferings of Christ after what we saw he went through? We'll we'll try and talk about
1: that. This has been Christ's the Answer program number 817. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506 734-930-4506 for program number 817 2004 mission number 3 No Greater Love The Enemy Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of Ave Maria radio.net Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern From the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.